Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Later in the podcast, we're going to speak to James Tarmy of Bloomberg and Brian Boucher of Artnet about their impressions of the old master sales that took place here in New York. But before that, we're going to speak to Harag Vartanian, who is the editor-in-chief and founder of Hyperallergic, who's just been in L.A. for a series of art fairs. Harag, tell us a little bit about what you saw. Well, I went out for the art fairs, um, the L.A. Art Book Fair, the Art Los Angeles Contemporary, and at the same time, the Paramount Ranch Art Fair was going on, and, you know, checking out the galleries, because in, in L.A., the galleries seem to be moving and shifting at a pretty rapid rate, and so it was really nice to sort of check in and see the new spaces and, uh, and, and what's new in the L.A. art world. What did you see that was different from the last time you were there? Well, I mean, the Hollywood, the Hollywood gallery scene's really been filling out. And it's, you know, I have to say, I'm, I'm always surprised in the, in the LA gallery scene, how, how it is that all these spaces from blue chip to artist space to emerging galleries all end up in the same spaces. In New York, in New York, they all seem to be sort of more ghettoized into different neighborhoods. Um, well, in Los Angeles, you'll have like an artist space like LAX Art within a few blocks of Regan Project, you know, and it's, and it just seems kind of normal, and they've all moved there rather recently. So it, it, it's kind of an amazing sort of like circulation that kind of goes on, um, you know. And, and you know, it's always good to see because they're putting on shows. So you know, I have to say, when I asked around, it didn't sound like a lot of people were necessarily buying at the same rate that that uh, we usually come to expect in New York. But I don't think that's been very different with the whole LA gallery scene. The usual complaint about L.A. is that everything's too spread out, too atomized. So it sounds like things are finally gelling into some form of a community. Well, in Hollywood, there's definitely, I mean, Culver City always had a little bit of fun, but some of the galleries have been moving out of Culver City to places like Hollywood. But I have to say, you know, being there for five, six days, it's impossible to do more than one or two art neighborhoods. I mean, and it, and it's just, it can be really frustrating. I mean, this trip I had to... Uh, make sure not to go to any museums because I knew how they sort of eat up whole days. You never get to do everything you want. But, you know, really the focus this year were, for me was, uh, or at least this month, I should say, was really the art fairs themselves. And I have to say the LA Art Book Fair was really, I mean, really boisterous. It was like there was a lot of energy, a lot of, lot of California publishers, um, which were really excited about what was going on. I have to say the, uh, the Art Los Angeles Fair you know, you know, I, it's one of those fairs I really want to love, <laughs> that I really want to like, but it it just doesn't seem to have the energy that a lot of other really successful fairs um, seem to have. And I mean, the size of it seemed pretty small. And you know, in Paramount Ranch this year, I decided to actually forego after like early reports of people saying, "Oh, well, it's kind of the same as last year." And and you know, and when I went last year, the part of the issue there is the fact that it's kind of gimmicky. It's in a, you know, it's in this sort of uh, old Hollywood set, which is which is really fun to sort of wander around. But I remember last year going and uh, realizing that after a month, I really didn't remember any of the art I saw <laughs> because I was too consumed by the venue itself. Um, and I think it's sort of like one of those places that people love to go, and it feels very nada in the terms of the, the aesthetic that it sort of puts forward. But, you know, I don't know if it's really the best place to be looking at art. 
Well, since you weren't distracted by the Paramount lot this time, what do you remember from this visit? Which were the artists that um, made an impression? Well, I mean, it was really great. I mean, even to see like the new Anish Kapoor show at Regan Projects was amazing. I mean, it was really, it was really impressive. Um, it was an impressive show. Uh, I mean, and it was some new work that I hadn't seen before. Um, a, lot, a lot of these kind of works that deal with mourning and they're a little, you know, not reflective surfaces, a lot more kind of uh, meaty work, to put it another way. Um, you know, so that that was really impressive. But then there were um, a lot of the artists. It's, it's kind of hard nowadays to figure out who's local and who isn't. You know, so there's like a Live Magic Laser show at, you know, various small fires, which was really strong. But I know she's based in Brooklyn, you know, and then, you know, you go to a space like LAXRs and, you know, there were a lot of local artists doing some really, really great little projects, um, different sculptural works and, and installations. And, you know, Slanguage uh, was doing their sort of like, you know, fun kind of conceptual uh, projects. And, you know, and it's so I'm actually having trouble figuring out who's local and who isn't anymore when, whenever I'm going to L.A. And, you know, I, I saw a performance at Night Gallery, and I realized that artist was from Brooklyn. And, you know, so, like, it's all blurred. You're like, who knows anymore? Um, you know, who knows what's, who's, who's local and who's, uh, you know, bi-coastal anymore? Why should L.A. be different from anywhere else in the art world? I mean, anywhere you go, it seems that most of the people in the art world or at an art fair are from somewhere else, uh, not local. That's right. There's like a ubiquity in it. And, you know, there, there, it just feels like going to, you know, a New York gallery. And, uh, you know, and I, I like that. But I feel like it even more than before. I think because the fact that the spaces are sort of larger and more pristine. And that was one thing that really sort of surprised me was in Hollywood, how the spaces were really these pristine spaces, you know, that felt almost Chelsea-like. And, you know, everyone had them. And they were all these giants, you know, like from Gavlak to, you know, very small fires to, uh, you know, any gallery you can imagine. And, and they were they were really nice, but I was kind of surprised because I, I guess I get used to, like, a lot of the emerging galleries having uh, smaller spaces and then building their way up, but it didn't really feel like that. Following along on Twitter, I noticed that there were a lot of Europeans attending the various art fairs. Did you get a sense of the crowd about who was around, you know, who else you ran into? Yeah, when I when I was speaking to people, I didn't get a I didn't get the sense that there were tons of Europeans. There were certainly like pockets of Europeans. Um, there were a lot of local people. Um, I, I did notice that, particularly at the um, Art Los Angeles um, Fair. I, I did notice that there were a lot of locals. Um, there were people sort of showing up, but you know, I think I think the general mood. Uh, seemed to be like there was kind of a West Coast vibe. There were a lot of people I, I encountered from along the West Coast. So I think, you know, L.A. kind of has this sort of beacon of the West Coast feel for the art world, and I think it's sort of, you know, solidifying that. Um, so, you know, even in the L.A. Art Book Fair, publishers from all around the area. I mean, and that was kind of nice that it had, like, sort of a regional flavor. I mean, at one point, I think I counted there were, like, over 100 California-based publishers which is kind of an amazing sort of number to think of. I'm amazed there are 100 publishers left in the world. <laughs> well, the fair had 250 uh, publishers. Um, and when we use publishers, of course, that's sort of a, you know, a, a, a catch-all phrase. It could be everything from some kid making a zine to like a, a multi-million dollar outfit producing really gorgeous catalogs. But, you know, a good almost half of them were California-based. 
um, which kind of shows sort of a vibrant scene. And that was that was really impressive to me. Um, you know, some of the collectors I did talk to, I, I don't think they saw anything that was really out of the ordinary. Nobody was really talking about any fines uh, in that way. Um, you know, and, and among the writers, I think they're, you know, because I was talking to critics, and I think people were kind of just sort of interested in the fact that this weekend becomes kind of like a little little opportunity to shine a spotlight on L.A. because there aren't other, a lot of weeks like this. Um, throughout the year. Well, I mean, the fact that there are three fairs and, you know, and the sort of energy that brings, I thought was really good. I did speak to Mara McCarthy, who's the daughter of Paul McCarthy, who runs the box in LA. And she thought, like, one of the things that was unique about this weekend was the fact that you had these sort of very, three very different types of fairs that adds an energy that you don't normally have during art fair week. Um, you know, and so she, she thought that that added a whole different it sounds like you're saying that they're complementary fairs rather than the tiered sense of there being a blue chip fair and then an alternative fair and then maybe, you know, a, an alternative to the alternative fair. Exactly. I mean, they're all incredibly different. Like, I mean, you you don't find the same thing really at, at each one. So I think it, you know, it had a little bit of that energy. And I mean, the LA Art Book Fair has just really great programming where they have like workshops and they have like book signings and artist talks and, you know, and, and other people doing presentations on different sort of more academic topics. So, you know, you literally have a very rich program that lasts like four days. And, you know, and then so that way it sort of complements the more conventional art fair, you know, in Santa Monica. And then, you know, if you want something quirky off the beaten path, almost like a weekend getaway, you go to Paramount Ranch, you know. And so each one had played its own little role. Do you think that they could build on this, that other fairs could join in and give us the sense of the true art capital that Los Angeles is and create a, a sort of central temple event that focuses on the city? Well, I mean, I, I would hope it would, but I have to say getting around L.A. is, I mean, it's still a problem. I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's so true. Um, you know, just being able to figure out how to sort of navigate, because even the fairs that exist now are all very far away from each other. You know, and, it, you know, if there has to be some ability, like in Miami, to be able to cluster them somehow in some type of location. And no one's figured that one out yet. And I think if they did that, then I think definitely it has that potential, particularly because of the quality of the museums. And then a lot of the emerging spaces, I mean, Night Gallery is doing such great programming. And they had a performance going on in the, uh, that weekend. And, you know, they, they do really good stuff. And, they you know, they really were are able to sort of create a little community around, um, around them. And, you know, and there are other little spaces and experimental spaces like that, too, that do a really good job. Um, Echo Park has its own scene that's sort of really, uh, really amazing. I mean, the Machine Project has, you know, ha- has been doing alternative types of programming with museums and other places for the last 10, 15 years. Um, so that, you know, but I feel like everyone that shows up to LA, or at least the people who are coming to the fairs, never get to see those spaces. So if there was a way to integrate them into the whole thing, to really see what LA is about, because I think they're more distinctly LA in terms of the types of projects they're supporting. But no one's been able to figure that one out yet. I guess there's always next year. Um, where are you going to next, Rob? Well, I'm off to Minneapolis uh, this week uh, to uh, 
take a look at the scene there with Burnett's Gallery and some of the other alternative spaces that are going on. There seems to be a lot of art activity going on in Minneapolis, so I'm there to check that out. So hopefully, hopefully that will be a really uh, fun trip. And then, you know, upcoming trips are everywhere from Miami uh, to uh, Kuwait and Dubai. Hopefully, I'm always I always look forward to Art Dubai, which is I think one of the one of the most interesting fairs going on nowadays. Good. Maybe we'll get a chance to catch up with you after each of those trips. That'll be great. Well, Harag, thanks for taking the time. Yep. Thanks, Marion. Always a pleasure. Now we're going to turn to a discussion of the old master's sales that took place in New York last week. They were a decidedly mixed bag. Christie sold about $34.3 million worth of art. That's half of what they sold the year before. Sotheby's did much better, selling about $79 million, but even that was toward the low end of expectations. Last week, I spoke to James Tarmy of Bloomberg and Brian Boucher of Artnet about their impressions of the sales. James, let's begin with you. Uh, sure. I, you know, I actually thought these were a very, very interesting series of sales because um, at first it sort of seemed like there wasn't a real narrative to come out of it insofar as... Christie's first sale was just an absolute disaster. Um, I think they sold 22 out of 54 lots. Um, And I think their total was a third of their low estimate. Um, But then Sotheby's the next day actually had, I mean, not spectacular sales, but um, uh, very, very decent sales, especially in the middle market. Um, so it, it was difficult even to say, oh, you know, the top is selling, but the middle is hollowed out and people are just looking for bargains. Um, but I think actually what ultimately kind of shines through is that um, people were really after um, decent decent provenance and very solid uh, attribution most of the time, though the exception, of course, is the uh, Van Dyke at Sotheby's, which did very, very, very well. Um, it's The Van Dyke is possibly a Dobson, I believe, um, and has basically switched over the past 200 years or 150 years as being attributed to Van Dyke and Dobson. But I would say that the kind of overarching narrative that you could make is that Christie's um, really kind of had a performative approach to pricing, which is that they estimated, I mean, aggressive retail values, basically, which shut out most dealers. And um, the paintings that they were aggressively pricing were a little bit um, kind of shaky, not only in quality, but also uh, provenance a lot of the time. And that that wasn't the case with Sotheby's. Um, Brian, I, I want to get back to the sort of middle market concept and uh, sort of who the, the, the buyers were um, in, in a second. But first, uh, Brian, do you want to give a, a sense either, you know, I, I know uh, you were reporting on Christie sales. It was almost a bit of a shock to you. What, what was the feeling being in the room as sort of seeing uh, them come up uh, so short? Uh, the room was was pretty quiet. The the atmosphere was a little grim. And I mean, off the record, dealers said to me, "Look, these were it's exactly as James said that these were very very ambitious estimates. That a lot of things 
dealers said, look, if you had estimated this at a million dollars instead of $2 million, probably it would have sold. Um, so I think the dealers sort of shrugged and they felt like, look, we're not, we're not stupid. We know what these things are worth. So I mean, some of this is just seems to be Wachter's, you know, strength in the field. But uh, the other part of it would be who the buyers are. And that was supposed to be part of the theme going into this week is we're bringing in new buyers. And is there a sense that those buyers just didn't show up? Yeah, I, you know, off the record, I don't have a lot of intel about the buyers, actually. Uh, it was like specific names of buyers. So um, I think certainly if you look at the results, as James alluded to, only 40% of work sold at Christie's Old Master Sale Part 1, which I attended. The others I know just from the press releases so certainly the numbers tell a story of the, of the buyers not showing up. I think people, uh, dealers were wondering, well, several people have pointed out to me that, of course, there's more Chinese and Russian interest. And in fact, uh, Christie's has a, a relatively new specialist based in Hong Kong, uh, which reflects an anticipation of more money coming from China as far as Russia. I got a couple of different experts saying, look, the crash of the ruble is not going to help any of these Russian dealers uh, or, you know, potential Russian buyers. On the other hand, these oligarchs are probably have their money offshore anyway. So different, different guesses about, uh, about the Chinese and the Russian new buyers. There was also um, an interesting essay by the deal of Robert Simon at Artnet News, where I work, about the auction houses attempts to increased interest in these old masters trying to get some of the shine of the contemporary art market. If you look at the catalog, for example, the uh, portrait by Bronzino, they compare it with a Joseph Cornell, a Lucian Freud, and Andy Warhol, as if to say, this is the same sort of tradition of portraiture that someone like Andy Warhol and Lucian Freud are working in, as if to you know take some of the get some of the people who are so interested in contemporary art and have pumped that market up so high and get them to bring some of that dough to the old masters. That doesn't seem to have worked at at Christie's uh, in any case. James. Uh, I I also uh, mentioned uh, that in a preview that I wrote that I believe Marion called Dower. Um, Dour, my friend, Dour. Dour. Okay. Uh, the point I think is that, uh, these auction houses are really grasping (laughs) to, to, at at the highest level, you know, I, again, I think that there's, there is this, this disconnect between, um, stuff that's very, very, very good and almost never comes to auction and impossible to get. And then, um, this, this kind of uh, slightly more run-of-the-mill and traded pieces. Um, and, you know, Christie's certainly was trying, as Brian says. Uh, I'm, and the, the question is, though, you know, I mean, if you look at all of these luxury towers that are going up in midtown Manhattan with floor-to-ceiling glass windows um, and – you imagine a bronzino and a gilt frame on the wall, like, could you, could it possibly work? And the answer is probably not. And I think that's the terms that you actually have to look at this, but that's, that's total well, that, speculation. Well, that, that suggests that the, um, the field itself 
is just going to wither and die. And yet we saw a lot of, and you mentioned earlier, we saw a lot of works that were priced in the three to five, six hundred thousand selling, you know, sometimes a hundred, two hundred thousand above, sometimes, you know, around a million dollars. So there were clearly buyers interested in what they thought were interesting uh, uh, works. Now, maybe that's the dealers uh, uh, thinking they found something. That that Van Dyke, uh, the Dobson Van Dyke, Van Dyke Dobson is a good example. The, mm. the other one which you wrote about, James, is the, the constable uh, that, you know, got so much attention just because it had been cleaned and uh, uh for the most part. But certainly the buyers uh, bought the reattribution uh, in a big way. Right. The- they didn't buy the reattribution, however, of uh, the Caravaggio, which, um, right. I mean, if, if it had been a 100% bulletproof solid Caravaggio, I quoted someone as saying, you know, it would be selling for a lot more than an estimated 3 to $5 million. But 3 to $5 million is still a lot to gamble on. Well, it would have been yeah, a 20 is... to $30 million uh, estimate, let alone what it would have sold for. But like the Vermeer um, Christie's uh, uh, sold last year, you know, it, it, even that Caravaggio didn't really look like what you want a Caravaggio to look like. Right. It was, was going to be an early Car- Caravaggio or it was going to be something else. Uh, and the same thing with that early uh, Vermeer. So at, when you're, the problem with selling a trophy like that is it, it, it's very hard to attract without, as you just said, without that sort of circle of buyers who want to have a trophy in their apartment that's going to look great in their glass or, or, uh, apartment. It's hard to uh, get the people to spend in a competitive way, whereas the real connoisseurs are coming into that market looking for things at a lower level. Um, Go on. I, I do think that one of the one of the interesting things, and and you guys have just been talking about this, but I I just want to chime in a little bit. The car, it's partly a story of attribution. The the dealer David Tunick said the entry for the Agnello Bronzino painting that did fairly well at auction yesterday at Christie's in the Renaissance sale or Wednesday rather. Um, but if you look at the literature entry in the catalog, it was at a certain point attributed to Andrea del Sarto. It was at another point attributed to Pontormo. And so it's uh, it's a little shaky. Several dealers told me that the word among dealers is that that Caravaggio is just not a solid attribution. Right. And it is interesting that this Constable painting went the other way. Somebody got it for $5,300, I think, last year at Christie's, and then it went for, in the millions, I I forget the figure, I'm sure you guys know it, um, at Sotheby's. And so the attribution attribution issue can can swing either way. Well, I, you know, I I think that it's funny. I I was surprised, James, that the, that Christie's was so, uh, how should we put it, tart in response to your your question. There, there, There are plenty of paintings that are bought and cleaned 
especially if there's a lot of overpainting on it, and dramatically reassessed. In fact, that's what dealers do. They, they, you know, uh, uh, Philip Mould has uh, uh, made a, a television career uh, uh, out of it. Uh, you, you find something, you take the risk on it, you do the work and the research, and you bring it back with um, confidence, and that is easier for the, the next person to buy it at $5.2 million rather than at uh, $5,300. In my experience, uh, one auction house, in my limited experience, one auction house commenting on another auction house's sale is kind of unprecedented. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, my, my total guess is that it just was a little bit more obvious than anyone would, would have liked to admit to themselves at the time. Um, but that's that's just a guess. Uh, you know the 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 Viscounts Hambledon, uh, who are the people who uh, sold the uh, sold the constable originally in their estate sale in 2013, um, had some old masters. Um, it, it was it was not some real old masters. It was not completely out of the question. This this wasn't like an attic sale in New Hampshire. You know, these were these were real collectors. Um, so, my only speculation is that, you know, Christie's was a little bit embarrassed about this, which was what led them to comment on the record at all. It reminds you a little bit of the uh, passage in Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink about the Getty Kouros that the Getty commissioned study and research and they felt absolutely solid that they had an ancient Greek chorus and then people like Thomas Hoving and others looked at it and their first thought was no way this is a recent copy this did not spend time under the earth this was not just dug up somewhere as the as the seller and the museum seemed to think there was some gut reaction that it was absolutely not what it was being billed as I know that cleaning was part of the story of the Constable Salisbury Cathedral that we're talking about, but I wonder if uh, if there's some Gladwellian. Well, I mean, really, that I mean that hits on the fundamental reason why it's very difficult to imagine old masters ever reaching the kind of price levels of uh, 20th century artworks, simply because. Um, even if you are really just buying this artwork because you love it and not to speculate on it, and even if you intend to have it in your house for a very long time, um, I would imagine that anyone spending $20 million on an artwork or more um, would love to be sure that they're spending $20 million on an artwork painted by the person they thought it was painted by. And because there's this century, multiple centuries of uncertainty um, about attribution and provenance, it's, I would imagine that it's a lot harder to kind of take that plunge. Which is interesting to me, partly because Christopher Wool's paintings, for example, are climbing in, in price. We saw some of his paintings do very well in the fall, and he continues to turn out work. These contemporary artists whose prices are rising so much, there's no scarcity of their work. There's a great scarcity of Caravaggio and Bronzino, and yet the prices don't escalate based on scarcity because of exactly this, because of the shifting sands of time. And as, as David Tunick said to me in my article, who knows what we're going to be calling these paintings in 50 years. Right. You know, I, I would say one thing about that, though, which is uh, I, I think it's been 
fairly well established over the last, uh, say, about uh, eight years, maybe a bit longer, that in the size of the art market that we now have, scarcity is no longer a, a generator of value. It actually suppresses value. Hmm. Artworks are valued because they have currency. And the problem with old masters and even now with uh, impressionist works and some modern works is there are so few in private hands that there's a, there's a, a scarcity either, as, as you said, a scarcity of um, uh, a, a, a reliable objects or just the scarcity of ones on the private uh, uh, market. You know, if you're a real connoisseur, there, there's a lot of museum quality old masters that you can buy that have very solid uh, attributions uh, for much lower prices, but there's just not enough work out there around for your, your uh, collection to feel like you're participating in this large global art world. It, it's not an accident that Picasso and um, Warhol are the two most valuable artists. It doesn't take anything away from them as artists that they're also the most prolific uh, uh, artists. And we've right. seen that with, with Kuhn's, with Hearst, with Murakami, um, you know, with a, a whole group of uh, artists that the ability to generate enough uh, work for uh, the size of the market um, is what helps determine uh, value, or it's one of the things that helps determine value. And I guess that goes back to the original question of, you know, there, there's a lot more good old master's works available than people realize where they just haven't found the kind of cultural currency that contemporary art has in, uh, found at least in the last five or ten years. I would add to that the kind of continuous uh, lament that multiple people kind of voiced to me this week, basically saying that old master's prices are not very high and therefore people with extraordinarily good old master paintings and sculptures are not bringing them to market because they think that they're not going to get very good prices for them, which of course continues this kind of slump in, in prices. It's a circular effect. Um, Self-fulfilling. Exactly. Um, and I mean, that's certainly a dominant perception. Uh, again, I thought that there was some very nice stuff at Sotheby's. Um, and also the Epic Guggenheim collection at uh, Christie's also had some excellent bronzes. Um, but even even that uh, hit its kind of just above the low estimate. Um, I think the Epic Guggenheim was like 11.4 million above a low estimate of 11.3. But that's also, again, which re we return to this idea of um, aspirational pricing as opposed to market pricing. And just to make a very technical point, of course, that 11.4 total includes the house fees, whereas the 11.3 low estimate pre-sale does not. And so really, if you compare apples to apples, they fell short of the low estimate, right? Right. Totally. Yeah, very, very technical point, but... No, but it's, 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 it's incontrovertible that, that um, the old master's market doesn't have the momentum that we see in other markets. 
you know, uh, auction house estimates are, are, are like, you know, uh, any other piece of marketing. They, sometimes uh, a high estimates bring out the buyers and sometimes low estimates bring out the, the, the buyers. But the overall impression that this, whether you, you beat your estimates or not, not gives is whether there's, there's real sort of excitement and activity in a sale. And I think, you know, in both cases, it's hard to make uh, the argument that these were um, the kinds of sales that would bring new buyers in that would make people sit up and notice and say, hey, there's something happening in the old master's market. I should take another look at it. I would agree with that. Right, right. Well, gentlemen, uh, I, I appreciate the, the time and the interest. My pleasure. No, this has been great fun. I, I... Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 